All right, so that uh, kind of gets us up to snuff, and um, we will talk a little bit about the Day of Atonement. So everyone, I think, certainly believes that everyone here believes that Jesus, when he came to the earth, was a matter of God coming down to mankind. And so the book of Leviticus uh, deals with the tension between how sinful people can approach a holy God. So what happens when God comes down? Well, let's briefly talk about the path. Remember, the book of Leviticus begins in chapter 1, verse 1, that God, uh, from the tent, from the tabernacle, he calls Moses to him. Well, we back up and remember Adam and Eve got put out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Remember, they dwelled in the garden in the presence of God. They even conversed with God. They were with God, but it was their sin that caused them to be separated from God. And so that's a very important point for all of us to understand. Sin severs the relationship with God. Sin distances you from God. And so that's what we see there in the Garden of Eden. Then we know that as we go through the book of Genesis, uh, things got to the place where the Bible says even the imagination of men's hearts was evil continually, and there were violence everywhere, and, and all kinds of things that uh, was very upsetting to God. And so what God wound up doing was he destroyed all the living creatures on the earth, except, of course, for those that were in the ark. And so sin was removed, or literally, I guess you could say, washed away in the floodwaters. And so God still is wanting to renew and restore and recreate this fellowship with man whom he had created. And so sin was out of the way. Uh, Noah and his family make a sacrifice. And at some point, God chooses a man, Abraham, and his family. And it's going to be through that family that God restores this relationship with man. And so God makes all these promises to Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And remember that Jacob is where the nation of Israel comes from. It's the, the 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so we remember how that the Israelites wind up in the land of Egypt, and there they become slaves, and they spend uh, 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And uh, God calls Moses from the burning bush, and God chooses Moses to lead them out of Egypt, to free them from slavery, and they cross through the Red Sea. And then the Egyptian army that followed them was destroyed and drowned in the Red Sea. And so there you've got it again. You have sin is taken away. Sin is removed. Uh, again, literally by washing there. So the point is God wants to be with his people. God desires to be with his people. So uh, it had been a long time since Eden 
And so God has worked this plan all throughout the generations of time. And now he appears to Moses in a burning bush. And listen to what God said to Moses. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. And as we sang just a few moments ago, this is holy ground. So God is appearing. He's revealing himself in this burning bush. And when Moses wants to get closer, to get a closer look, God stops him and says, no, no, no. And so again, like was pointed out in the video, God coming and man being with God is a very, very good thing. But while God is love and while God draws us by his love and while God wants a relationship with us, it can be a very dangerous, a deadly thing to get too close to God if you are not clean or pure as the video described. So now we see that God comes to Mount Sinai when he calls Moses up to receive the Ten Commandments after they're delivered and cross the Red Sea. And what happens? Fire and smoke and lightning and hail and thunder and all these things like an earthquake. All of this is going on and God gives the instruction don't touch the mountain. Tell everybody, you cannot touch the mountain or you're going to die. Then God comes into the tabernacle and we find the same kind of instruction. Nobody can go in there to the most holy place or you're going to die. That's what happened in Leviticus chapter 10. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they evidently went in in an impure state. They went in when they were not supposed to be going in. And they died when they entered the presence of God unprepared. And so in each of these instances, we see God appears and fire is involved. And fire is a very good thing, but fire can also be a very dangerous and destructive thing. And so there, there's, there's a point I think we want to get from that. And so, here we are, the tabernacle is made, and Leviticus begins by God in the tabernacle, and he's calling Moses to approach. Now, the tabernacle is referred to in Scripture as the tent of meeting. In other words, that's where you would go and meet with God. And there's some really interesting parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. They both faced the east. And remember when Adam and Eve got put out of the Garden of Eden, there were two cherubims who were there at the gate or the entrance to the garden. And they were there with flaming swords, which indicates if Adam and Eve would have tried to go back into the garden, they would have died because they could not be with God. They could not be in the presence of God in their sinful state. And so it's fascinating that if you look at that little crude diagram of the tabernacle, if you went into the area, you walked in, the first thing you would see is this altar. And there's fire on that altar burning perpetually. All the time, that fire never goes out. 
So what you would see, now knowing that inside that tent, there is the place where God dwells. But the first thing you would see, you would walk in there and you would see an altar of fire. And if you look past the altar of fire, you would see an elaborate and expensive curtain. And that curtain divided things to where you had to pass through that curtain to go into the Holy of Holies. And you know what was embroidered on that curtain? Two cherubims with swords. So some interesting parallels between the tabernacle and Eden because remember what God is doing, he's wanting to restore what he had with man in the Garden of Eden. And so he tells Moses to make this tabernacle and God's presence would be there. And inside the tabernacle, there are many interesting things that we could talk about and spend a lot of time on. But uh, it's interesting that the menorah that was inside there really would be a symbolic of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And so the point is, uh, we cannot dwell with God in our sinful state. And so Leviticus is full of these blood sacrifices. Josh taught about the five different kinds of sacrifices earlier, and it seems like a very weird, strange thing to us uh, to slaughter innocent animals and why God would do such a thing. But the fact is, we're dealing with a culture uh, a few thousand years ago and a time and a place that we're fairly ignorant of and it's just like if you were to be dropped down in some foreign country maybe in Africa or somewhere or some other part of the world uh, where you didn't know the language you didn't know the customs you didn't know the culture you didn't know hardly anything about it almost everything would be strange and difficult to understand and that's what we're dealing with here. It's just a, a whole different culture, a whole different situation. But the scriptures, if, if we allow them to, explain to us what all of this is about. Now these rituals, and the ritual of blood sacrifice is something that is referred to as embodied theology. Now what does that mean? In other words, Within the actual activities themselves, the activities are teaching us, they're telling us something about God. And that's what's going on with these sacrifices. So physical acts and the repetition of these physical activities actually are helping us in our faith, in our convictions and in our lives. For example, uh, Jesus left us two rituals. You just, you just saw one of them. You just, you just saw one of the rituals that Jesus left for his people. That's baptism. And a few minutes from now, you're going to see another ritual that Jesus left for his people, and that's the Lord's Supper. Now, these are physical things. Now, over here in the waters of baptism, you know, Luke could have, if he wanted to, uh, just taken a cup of water and, and poured it 
on these guys' heads, or he could have just got water in his hands and just sprinkled it on these guys. And a lot of people today would say, well, that's, that's, that's baptism. That's a form of baptism. But that's not what he did. He put them under the water. He buried them. He immersed them in the water. Now, why did he do such a thing? Well, besides the fact that that's what uh, the, the word actually means, uh, it means immersion. But besides that, what you're seeing is embodied theology. You're seeing an activity take place that is teaching us about spiritual realities. You see, just like Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, whenever we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. It is in the death of Jesus, it's in the shed blood of Jesus that our sins are washed away. And so baptism is a picture of a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And so the old man is buried, the new man is brought up. He's resurrected to a new life. So you saw that. You witnessed that physical act, but there are so many beautiful, incredible spiritual implications in the act. And we'll talk about that in the Lord's Supper shortly. It's also interesting that there, you, you know, it's hard for us to put ourselves in the place, use your imagination maybe, that, that you were like most of the people in an, an agrarian society and maybe your family, you had a few sheep or maybe a, a couple of goats and maybe a cow or something like that. And um, the time comes for you to offer a sacrifice to God. And you, you know that you're supposed to offer one uh, that is, is as perfect as you can find. And so maybe, maybe it was your favorite. Maybe it was a lamb that, that you kind of nurtured and even took better care of than maybe some of the other sheep around. And so it's kind of like a pet to you maybe even. And so you, you take this lamb and you have to take it uh, to the altar and you lay your hand the one who made the sacrifice, the owner of the lamb had to lay his hand on the head of the lamb or the goat. And you laid your hand on for identification because this lamb or this goat is becoming you by representation. This is representing you, okay? And then you slit its throat. That's how they sacrificed them. It was quick. It was painless. It, they slit their throat. And the blood poured out at the altar. Wow. But you see, if you did that, if you did that, you would feel something. Trust me. You would feel the enormity of the sacrifice you would be very sensitive to what just went down. And it would really make you appreciate the life that was given so that you could live in the presence of God. And all these blood sacrifices, they had to be, the blood had to be spilt on the altar 
They were all taken to the altar. And blood symbolizes life. I want to share with you from chapter 17 what's said in verse 11 and verse 14. So why the blood? Why blood sacrifices? Well, here's your answer. It's to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, your sins are covered by the blood of this sacrifice. But what we don't get, and what's a little bit strange or difficult, but I want you to get this, what you're seeing or what we're thinking is a lamb is killed. It dies. But the blood goes to God and so far as God's concerned, that's the life. The life is in the blood. Now, you follow me there. It's a little strange. In the death, in the death of the innocent sacrifice, the blood that is on the altar, the blood that is sprinkled on the altar, the blood that is given to God as an offering to God, God sees it, God views it as life. The life is in the blood. So what's happening here is that you who are dead to God in your sins are making a sacrifice because remember, you've laid your hand on this animal and this animal now represents you and so it dies, but it lives by the blood. The same thing is what's happening to us. That's what you saw in, in, in the act of baptism. We are dying to the old life, the old man, the old self. We have died, but in our death, we are alive because of the blood of Jesus. And just like we laid our... Uh, you might have laid your head, hand on the head of the lamb and that lamb represented you in the sacrifice. Jesus represents you in his sacrifice. Jesus is the representative. Jesus is our sin bearer. So if you could get the, that picture as just as the lamb becomes our representative, Jesus becomes our representative. And in his death, by his blood, we live because the life is in the blood. That's why we, we say we are washed in the blood. That's why we're baptized into the death, because that's where the blood was shed. And regardless of whether we understand it or not, there it is in Leviticus 17, verses 11 and 14. And God says in verse 14, I have given you blood to purify you. He's not talking about the blood running in your veins here. He's talking about that sacrifice. I've given this to you. This is not, this is not to appease an angry God like the pagans made their sacrifices to please the gods. No, 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 no. This is quite the opposite. God 
gives this sacrifice. God is giving us blood to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So let's talk about the Day of Atonement. It's an annual feast that covered all the sins of the people, known and unknown. It was to repair the broken relationship between God's people and, and him. The high priest, he would remove his normal garments, his regular priestly garments, and he would put on these special garments, white. He would bathe himself first, put on the white garments, and that was symbolic of the purification that was taking place that God was offering through their repentance. He would make a sin offering for himself, for his family, for the people, and really for everything else, as we're going to see. He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would take in a pan of coals from the altar of incense, and he would create a cloud of smoke over the most holy place where the cherubim were over the Ark of the Covenant. And so it would be all smoky and everything. And listen to what was said in Leviticus 16:2. God said, I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. And so the priest literally caused that to happen with his incense. And all of this was done for God to forgive the people of any sins they had committed during the year. It was a remembrance, a reminder to them that they were sinful that they needed to be cleansed and purified in order for God to stay there. God would have left out of there, folks. He would have left the tabernacle. His presence would have no longer been there with them. It wouldn't have been a tent of, e of meeting anymore. They would have just gone into a tent, and it had just been them if it were not for the blood sacrifices and the sacrificial system. Atonement, it's kind of interesting if you break it down, at one meant. In other words, the idea of bringing together. God is reconciling us to himself. God is restoring the relationship. God is making communion and fellowship possible. How? By a ransom, by a price, by a redemption that was paid, the blood of the sacrifice. It was the payment of a debt that we owe God. The blood of Jesus wipes away the debt of sin. The blood of Jesus covers our sin. It was for purification. Whenever the people would make these sacrifices, when the high priest would go in and make this sacrifice, the people were purified for another year. They were given forgiveness. They were shown grace. They were shown mercy. They were saved in a sense. And there was a special sacrifice, a special ceremony, a ritual in the Day of Atonement. Two goats were taken. One was for the Lord. The Bible says the other one was for Azazel. Well, who in the world is that and what is it? Some Bible scholars believe that's a pagan god. Some believe that it's a demon. Some believe that it's a, a, an area 
because it refers to the wilderness of Azazel. And so, nonetheless, this is very representative. Lots were cast. One goat was going to be sacrificed. The throat would be slit. This was an offering to God. And the blood was sprinkled in the very presence of God, on the mercy seat, in the most holy place, between the cherubs, on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the blood was put. The blood went straight to God. And he made an atonement because blood was sprinkled there at the holy place, but it was also sprinkled around the tabernacle, It was sprinkled on the altar, and Hebrews 9 verse 22 tells us that it was sprinkled pretty much on everything, all of the utensils, everything that was used by the priest, everything. And you think, why? Why why did the, the utensils, why did the tent, why did the altar itself, why did... Why did all of these things have to be purified? And that tells us something very important about sin. And maybe you've thought of this and maybe you haven't. Sin leaves a residue. Sin leaves pollution. Sin leaves corruption. And not just in people, but where people commit sin. Where people dwell. Folks, there are evil places in this world. That's why there have been times where people go into all the rooms of this facility and walk around this facility and pray and ask God to sanctify it and purify it and cleanse it. Because we probably bring a lot of sin in here. That's why People have asked me to come to their new house before they move in and pray at every room and every window and every door that God would protect it, that God would sanctify it, that he would purify it because who knows what happened in that house before they bought it. Some of you may think that's strange and that's weird, but I'm just telling you it's biblical. It's biblical. Sin contaminates and corrupts places and things. It has an effect. And so the scapegoat, it was taken and led way out into this wilderness. And the whole point of that was that the sin is out of here. It's removed. It is gone. So Jesus is both our high priest, the book of Hebrews says, He is also the sacrifice. So he's not just the high priest offering an animal sacrifice. He's the high priest offering himself as a sacrifice. And that's why John, when he introduced Jesus to his followers, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus entered once for all time into the presence of God, not the tabernacle, folks. He entered into heaven itself. He went to the throne of God itself. And just like on the Day of Atonement, that blood was brought in there and sprinkled on the mercy seat, 
right there where the cloud of smoke was and the presence of God was. Jesus' blood went to God himself on his throne in heaven. And he did that to atone for our sins, to ransom us. We are purchased. We are set free from sin by the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of the sinless Son of God was made on our behalf so we could approach to God. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, the veil, that big, thick, expensive curtain with the cherubims on it, you know, that curtain was rent in half. Miraculously, it just ripped in half, signifying that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus, I can go in there into the presence of God. You can go into the presence of God. And we together, collectively, the Scripture says, are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood, Peter says. We can approach God. And the beauty of that is because of Jesus Christ, the very Spirit of Christ, according to Romans 8, lives in us. We are with God. God is with His people. God has accomplished His purpose. God has done everything that He said He was going to do through Jesus. And so, I want to talk just briefly to lead into the Lord's Supper. I want to talk just briefly about what you're seeing there on the screen in the book of Hebrews. This is really, really beautiful. And based on all my years, 46 years of pastoring, I think this is one of the most needed points that need to be made to help people. Helps me. It's very encouraging to me. And I believe this is profound and it will help you. I want to share with you from uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. The best thing I can tell you is Spend a whole lot of time, especially Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10. Read it carefully and slowly and prayerfully, and then do it again and again and again. And you'll understand the book of Leviticus. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. Now this word perfect shows up a lot in the book of Hebrews. And the word, the Greek word has a wide range and, and can mean uh, there's some nuances to the word but I really think that in some of these passages in Hebrews the word actually means blameless. You remember in, in Matthew 5:48 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said be ye perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect? He's saying be blameless. It's the same thing as Peter's saying in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. God says, 
be holy for I am holy. And that, remember, that's what this book of Leviticus is all about. It's about how a sinful people can have fellowship with a holy God. How impure people, unclean people, can have fellowship with a clean and pure God. And folks, this is a big deal. This is life and death. This is everything. This is everything for me. It's everything for you. It's everything for the whole world. There's nothing more important than this is being able to approach God and have fellowship with him or not. And you have that through the precious blood of Jesus. So he says, the law, in other words, the law of Moses, all these animal sacrifices, they made nothing perfect or blameless. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's so beautiful. Remember the burning bush when Moses starts to draw near? God says, stop. Can't draw near. Remember when God is on the fiery mountain and people might want to come up there and approach God? God says, no, don't touch the mountain. You're going to die. Remember the most holy place? Even Moses couldn't go in there. Moses could not go in there. If he did, he'd die. And now we're reading... God is calling us. We can go there. We can draw near. We can be in the presence of God because of Jesus. So this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. Ver uh, chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. They serve a copy of and shadow of heavenly things. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And listen to what he says about the second, the new covenant. I will be their God, verse 10, and they shall be my people. Verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now I want you to remember that, because I'm going to come back to it, okay? God said, I will remember their sins no more. Now I want to take you to chapter 9, verse 9. This talks about the Day of Atonement. And you get down to verse 9. And he says, according to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect. In other words, there it is again. Cannot make you blameless. But it says cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You know what your conscience is? Your conscience, if it is trained, 
properly is that which convicts you. Your conscience is that thought process when you think about what you did that was wrong and what you should have done or what you could have done or what you want to do. Your conscience has all of these kinds of things going on. You know what your conscience is. It talks to you. But notice, he says, these sacrifices cannot make perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's me and you, folks. Animal sacrifices don't cut it. It can't get the job done. They deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and calves or goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purify our conscience. Now I want you to think about this. What this is teaching us and what is so important for you to understand is when you draw near to God, and that's, a, that's what you're, you're going to do in just a few minutes. You're going to draw near to God. When you, when you come up here to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, you're drawing near to God. You're coming close. You hear me? And the point being made here is that by the sacrifice of Jesus, two things happen. And I think we get one of them, but the other one we lose sight of. The one that we usually get is God will remember our sins no more. We're forgiven. But the one that I don't think people get and that we need to think about is what's happening in our mind, in our conscience. Our consciences are purified. And what that means is don't come to the table worrying about your sins you shouldn't be thinking about your sins because your sins are gone they're gone you hear me they're gone they're the goat that went was led into the wilderness and what happens with so many christian people they torment themselves year after year after year with their past and their past sins and the terrible things they've done and they constantly remember those things they constantly talk about those things they constantly worry about those things stop it because in Jesus Christ through his sacrifice through his shed blood your consciences are to be purified cleansed isn't that beautiful isn't that amazing? 
We don't have to worry about our sins anymore. They're gone. Just like the gold in the wilderness. And where did they go to? They went to the old demons. And that's where our sins have gone. They've all been to the demons and they're running down the cliff and destroying themselves. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. So what I want to do, I want to give you about two minutes of silence and I really want you to meditate and concentrate on that thought. Removing your past sins from your head. Think about what a purified, cleansed, holy conscience is like. Because remember, remember, we're approaching God. We're drawing near. He's inviting us near. Sin can't come to God like that. It can't be in the presence of God. It's been taken care of, folks. You're clean. You're clean. You're pure. And so you can come on. So just spend a couple of minutes thinking about that. And I'm going to have a brother come up and assist me. And we're going to invite you to draw near to the table. Mm -hmm.